Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. November 8th, Election Day, is right around the corner. And depending on where you live, you may be experiencing a very competitive election right now with lots of ads and mailers coming to you about the candidates. Or you might live in an uncompetitive district where you rarely see signs for the candidates on the ballot. The country recently celebrated both National Voter Registration Day and National Voter Education Week, which are nonpartisan civic holidays to try to encourage people to participate in the political process. This week, I've invited two guests on the program to talk a little bit about their research on how different states are encouraging people to register and to vote and what seems to be working to stimulate participation in our political process. Leah Maravaki is an assistant professor in American politics at Mississippi State University and a member of the Carter Center's U.S. Election Experts Study Team since September of 2020. Mara Setman Lee is an assistant professor in American politics at Connecticut College, specializing in election administration, political campaigns, and voting reforms. Both Leah and Mara just received funding from MIT and one from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission to expand their research on voter education across the states. So thanks, first of all, for both of you being on the program today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're heading into the November election, you know, this show, I have a lot of students listen to this show. A lot of people tune in just to kind of hear a little bit about how elections work and how the political process works. So I'm going to start with like a kind of a, a question that sometimes we talk about in intro American government which is about the differences between states because states do elections differently. How does, like, how does it work? How does the election process work overall in the United States? How, who controls that process? That's a big question. I'll start by saying that the differences that we see across the states stems from the constitution. And so if you want a very simple explanation for why we have this very decentralized system of elections uh, that is so different from place to place, that's one place to start. Um, And Leah, perhaps you might want to expand a little bit more on what those differences look like generally. And maybe we can also just talk about how voters living in different places can navigate those differences. Broadly speaking, obviously there's so many laws and so many variations uh, that we would have to have 12 hours of podcasting (laughs) and radio time to cover. Um, But yeah, Leah, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So yeah, that's what, that's what we tell our students too. So we know that every state holds the the federal election on a Tuesday, um, but states do have jurisdiction on the conduct and how to regulate who is eligible to vote. So they have jurisdiction over determining uh, when you can register to vote, how you can register to vote, how you can cast your ballot, how who is eligible to cast um, a mail ballot or vote early in person, whether a Dropbox will be available or not. So all these little details that are directly connected to a voter's access to uh, the voting process is determined by the states. And yes, the, the way we describe it in our research and to our students is the path to uh, the ballot box is very different compared to uh, for a voter that lives in Mississippi compared to a voter who lives in Connecticut or California. And assuming that all voters everywhere are equally interested in participating, their journey is very different uh, because of those different rules uh, in where they live. 
I remember uh, on election night, 2020, everyone, it was like, everyone woke up and realized that like, oh, wow, the laws are not the same everywhere. And yet that it's been that way since the beginning that each state has been doing its own election process a little differently. I know that both of you've been looking at specific states and investigating things like what increases turnout and, and how are they, you know, does giving information matter? Uh, to voters and how does it stimulate turnout? So can you guys talk a little bit about your Florida study? Mm. What did you, what did you do in your, like, tell me about your Florida study. And that one's from 2020, correct? And did you also look before 2020? I graduated from the University of Florida. And so I've spent a little, many years studying election decisions there. And Florida is a state that has a long history. And we, all, we always say, because Florida, that there, there's no need to justify why we study Florida, um, um, generally speaking. And Florida is a good state to study because of its history, but also um, there some data are accessible when it has to do with voter registration and other administrative processes. But also there are limitations uh, in studying Florida because not everything is disclosed. Um, we were we started thinking about voter education overall, and then thanks to great connections that we have with with election officials, particularly Lori Edwards in Polk County, Florida, um, I reached out to her and asked um, something about voter registration, and she saw us presenting at a conference, and then she sent me an email and said, "By the way." Florida uh, requires that we report our voter education activities to the state every federal election. And here is uh, a link to where the data are. So she pointed me to this great resource um, and the data were available for 2014. But then we started, we submitted records requests to get those surveys. Um, and we have 2014, 16, um, and then 2020. And that was a major resource um, uh, a treasure trove of data that allowed us to understand what uh, voter education means in the context of Florida. Um, and this was a great resource because all election officials, all 67 supervisors of elections have to submit, um, have to do the survey. And therefore, we were able to evaluate variation in whether or not election officials engage in specific activities and on the ground with other partners, uh, on voter registration, on other events. Um, and we supplemented this with, uh, with Mara's amazing uh, project on social media. So we're able to evaluate both what we call offline and online, um, traditional and um, other, way, other modes of voter outreach and also um, compare uh, which ones are more effective in the, at least in the context of Florida when it comes to encouraging voter registration. So yeah, Mara, if you wanna talk about how we, we merge our data with the social media data set. Yeah, yeah, I think that, um, so, so yeah, Leah, you had mentioned that we are looking in this paper at rates of successful um, rates of voter registration. We decided on this outcome because we wanted to, focus on an action that nearly every American, unless you live in North Dakota, has to take. And part of the turnout story is the successful completion of the registration process. And we want to understand if there are modes of information delivery and outreach that are more effective than others. And also supplement the survey that we got with an actual observed measure of voter education. So the survey itself is a survey. It's reported. Did you do this activity? Did you do that activity? 
And then we looked at the information shared on Florida Facebook accounts. Uh, supervisors of elections in Florida have a pretty robust presence on Facebook and looking specifically to see if there's a relationship between the information that they put out there about registration, about how to register, about deadlines, about online voter registration, and rates of successful registration. And fortunately, there is a positive relationship. And we also see some evidence that there uh, that these efforts are driving voters to take advantage of Florida's online voter registration system, which simplifies the process of registration, minimizes the number of steps. It's my understanding too, and Leah, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that online voter registration is administratively less burdensome for election officials. So in a nutshell, by merging these data, um, we are looking at this overtime data from 2014 to 2020. And then we do this in-depth um, analysis of content shared on Facebook over the course of the 2020 election cycle, including primary and general elections. And we're able to show that there is a positive relationship between the actual efforts that are being made by election officials and rates of successful registration. And so we think that there's a there's a, a lowering of voter costs that's happening here um, that is facilitating those successful registration rates. And we know that, you know, yeah, unless you, unless you live in North Dakota, if you're not registered, you can't vote. Um, so we really wanted to um, isolate that step in the process in this particular research. Yeah. And Mara, you just mentioned the costs of voting. And so when I talk with my students about voting and really any political decision, I discuss, you know, it's all economic kind of going back to downs, right? The idea that no matter what you do, there's costs and benefits to, to deciding if you're going to do it. So registration is one of those costs. Can one of you also talk a little bit about some of the other costs of voting? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. And, and on voter registration, um, this research we argue is very significant because we replicated it in 2020. Um, and online voter registration was a significant uh, policy because in its absence, voters did not have many options on the ground because of COVID. So this is important. It has implications about accessibility for voters in particular context. Um, other costs of voting, um, obviously, voters who want to participate not having the option of mail voting or they have to um, notarize their absentee request or they have to have more signatures. Um, they may not have access to another or knowledge of a notary. Something that our research, we were focusing more in our research at the moment is um, what we call the informational cost of voting. Um, and actually we have election officials, the amazing Brianna Lennon in Boone County, Missouri, she calls it um, the, the major like barrier to participation when voters do not have the information. So it's not as tangible as, you know, does my state have mail voting or not, which is obviously a barrier and a cost for voters who work on election day um, and things like that, but also what happens to voters who don't have the correct information or they don't have the information at all um, and they don't know how to, how to participate even if they want to. And that is a disincentive and it can lead to errors um, and that can leave voters out. Yeah, I think that the distinguishing between the what we might call structural costs um, you know, we think about the cost of voting in, is higher in some states than others because of the structural differences in the laws and um, the convenience laws that are present. But then what Leah is talking about is a little bit more intangible, but 
still just as important, the informational costs. And there is, I think, a almost sort of like a psychological barrier that gets, that gets thrown up if you're looking for information about how to do something and you can't find it easily. Um, you know, there's, yeah, we live busy lives and that can be very, very discouraging. And then there's also the issue of voters who think that they've done everything right, who think that they filled out the mail ballot return envelope correctly, only to realize that they haven't. And then maybe they get a call about a cure, you know, curing the ballot, which means correcting the ballot and, and making sure that it counts. But that's also more time and more costs. And so we like to think that having as robust of an information environment as possible up front, sort of proactively getting out ahead of mistakes um, and voters not having access to information is a really um, powerful way to lower some of the costs of voting, even in the presence of structural barriers. Yeah, we do argue that there are educative effects. So we cannot control the assuming that the state that the state doesn't change its policies and the, stru- the, bar- the structural barriers exist. They can be mitigated by voter education. Of course, it's not enough, but it is. Uh, it can be sufficient for voters to know what they need to do um, to at least overcome some of the challenges uh, if they want to participate. So, in the Florida study, you were both mentioning that. Um, certain activities were increasing the likelihood of people becoming registered, which means that there were probably some districts where you found that they were doing a few less of these activities and some where they were doing more. What types of districts are more likely to spend a lot of resources on having multiple avenues to try to get the word out about voting or registration? So I'll, I'll take the lead on this one because it's a, it's a question that we've not yet uh, dived into with the offline data that we have on voter education activities. I have looked at this question and this is working research. So, you know, with that, that caveat, this is a, a working paper, but trying to understand variation in the online presence of local election officials. And so we have a database of every single local election official who has an active Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram account, as well as their websites. And we're looking at things like what explains just whether or not they have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, what explains their like total online presence, um, what explains how consistently they are posting. And, you know, there's, there's the usual suspects, electoral competition. If, if an election official is, in a state in particular that has a history of very competitive elections like Florida, you're going to see a more robust online presence. A lot of that seems to be potentially driven by Florida and Ohio. I need to explore those as, as if you look at the map of what this variation looks like. Um, there's a lot of activity in those states and um, less so in places like um Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that are also pretty competitive. So that's sort of, there's a, there's a little caveat there. Um, jurisdiction size, there is just different, there's different needs that jurisdictions of different sizes have. I mean, that is one of the most consistent predictors that the larger jurisdiction, the more active they're going to be in communicating with voters online. Um, and it might be that rural jurisdictions don't, there's just, that's, there's just other ways in which they can connect with their communities. It's, it's more, perhaps more interpersonal. You know, there are some other interesting patterns, election officials that uh, are operating in jurisdictions that have um, at least one university or college 
they tend to be more active online. Um, there are unfortunately some disparities in terms of the racial and ethnic makeup of jurisdictions. Um, you know, so uh, jurisdictions that have higher proportions of racial and ethnic minorities are less likely to have an election official who is active in online voter education. Um, same, there's there's probably a correlation or relationship between the um, average income, you know, the, the socioeconomic um, status of a jurisdiction as well. Um, so in a nutshell though, there we're still sort of sussing out these patterns. There seems to be like your standard demographic ex, um, explanations, the sort of practical motivation, you know, are there, is there a large body of people there who are gonna need this information information. Students tend to need information about how to vote um, because they're new to the system. And then, you know, some potential political explanations as well uh, in terms of um, electoral competition. Less so in terms of partisanship, but that's like TBD. Leah, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add to that. Yeah, um, something that we are um, and very difficult to measure because of uh, difficult the difficulty of getting the data is a measuring capacity. What we hear from election officials is that, well, we don't have funding, we don't have staff, um, it's just me, you know, going on Facebook or so, you know, the ability, ideally election officials, what we would expect them to do, um, you know, go out in the neighborhoods and go to these communities and conduct in-person outreach into these events and at the same time be active on social media. So talk, reach all the respective audiences to different ways. But of course, it's not realistic. In many states, election officials work part-time. They don't have a stable funding um, with more restrictions now in where they can get their funding from and not a steady stream of money. Um, they have to prioritize, right? So that, that is a major factor that can explain um, why election officials, um, they may be making these decisions on what to prioritize when it comes to outreach. Uh, but that's a major explanation we receive when we ask them, you know, why, why aren't you on Facebook or Twitter? Why, you know, how can we understand better? Uh, it's not that they don't want to, it's that they don't have the time um, and resources for it. Yeah, I can totally see that. So let me pause for just a moment for anybody driving around and you just tuned into the program. If you're like, oh my gosh, who is Heather talking with? These people are fantastic. So let me reintroduce everyone. So I have been chatting today with two wonderful guests chatting about voter registration and what local voter registration offices are doing. We have Leah Maravaki on the show. She is an assistant professor in American politics at Mississippi State University and a member of the Carter Center's U.S. election expert study team since September of 2020, as well as Mara Sutman Lee, who is an assistant professor in American politics at Connecticut College, who specializes in election administration, political campaigns, and voting reforms. So as you were both talking about this and hearing about this great resource you had in Florida, so you mentioned that Florida, a lot of the, I mean, they're, they're required to give this information. What about the other states? Is it possible to get data like that? And are there any other states where you can get data like that? As far as we know, there is no other states that requires their local election officials at least, at least in a way that's publicly available, like the Florida data was. Um, so there's, there's not that requirement is not there in the way that we had it. Um, we're able to access in Florida. That being said, we are about to embark on a research project that is going to try to remedy that um, in terms of encouraging 
uh, doing a survey with state election officials about their voter education efforts and then working with them to encourage them to offer um, the survey to their local election officials. And it's going to be a multi-year endeavor. And we want it to be a cooperative uh, relationship, certainly not anything that's coercive. Um, so, you know, that is in the works. But no, there exists no standardized measure of voter education across the states in the same way that we have things like consistent measures of campaign spending or even the Wesleyan Median Project up the road from me, um, you know, that, that documents all of the information that's put out there by um, candidates in federal elections and campaigns and things like that. So I kind of feel like we're, we're, I don't know, is it bold to say that we're like the pioneers in the forefront of this? Kind I like of it. Say, yeah, yes, what are your perfect. thoughts? Yeah, your we're, thoughts? Try, we're trying. Um, but we're trying. We've been fortunate that we are um, we are involved in the net in networks with academics, but election officials say they are aware and they're very interested in this. And also, we have support from um, um, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission because the, what part of the the voter education program was was embedded in the Help America Vote Act. So we know that states had made commitments for voter education. So what we want to do, we want to see how many followed up on that and how concretely they incorporate voter education because we do know that a lot of states and localities educate voters, but what we don't know is what kind of commonalities do they have and uh, the Florida study has provided a nice foundation to you know a benchmark on what activities you know uh, could be added in that big list of voter education out and outreach so what we want to do as Mara said it is important for us to collaborate with election officials because they do the work so it would be very arrogant and misguided of us say oh we think we know how this should work um, and, and also what we care about is we know that there are many factors that affect um, someone's decision to vote. So we're very careful in theorizing about the impact of these efforts. Um, and the first step in our work is to clarify that we think that this education works in helping voters understand what they need to do. And also it has other effects in helping them trust the system more. If they know, if they are connected to their election official, if they see them working to inform them and they're open and accessible and transparent, you can also increase trust. So if, if you're driving around and you're thinking, okay, what about Southwest Virginia? So this morning I went on to Facebook to see if I could find if our local counties have Facebook presences. And what I found is that Washington County does have a Facebook page. Wise County does. Russell County does. Buchanan County does not. And Dickinson County does not. And of the three that I just mentioned that do have a Facebook page, they have a very low number of followers. So one of the counties has 631. So that was Washington. Wise County has 831. Russell County only has 188, and that page hasn't been updated since 2016. So there's a lot of variation even where I am, and I would love to know about the other activities that they're doing, similar to what both of you are saying, that they could be doing things offline, plus we have low levels of internet access here in Southwest Virginia, which might also be driving whether they have a Facebook page or not. But Mm -hmm. I completely think that access to information online is essential and that money might be driving some of this too. Like, do they have the funding? Do they have the capacity to really have a Facebook page and put up things mm-hmm. as quickly so, as we would like? So there are two things that I would like to, to, to note on that one. The first one is that we know from research 
uh, on the voter experience, particularly Natalia Don and Paul Gronke, they did this great survey years ago. And the first thing that voters say when it comes to where do you look for voter information, it's their local election officials' website. So this is important, but also the social media has an important component. You mentioned followers, which is very significant because we might have an election officials who's very active, but they have few followers. So what's, how do they get the word out? What's the point in them um, posting and informing when nobody's getting the message? For Facebook, we're now exploring an option that we found out. Um, it's called voting voter alerts. So Facebook has an option for, for election officials to use to send uh, um, updates to the broader geographic area, but it is an alert sent by Facebook, not the election official, but the official is... Um, initiating the, the alert. So we're exploring those, uh, the usage of this tool uh, and uh, in what way election officials, whether they're aware of it, first of all, and second of all, how they use it to reach a broader audience uh, on social media. That could be a good way to drive more followers. But you're right, uh, understanding offline and online at the same time, there must be networks where voters are informed about, oh, my election official is on Facebook, I will follow them and then you know spread the word and then increase the following. So they're all working together. Yeah. And, and something else that we obviously it's hard to measure, um, you know, in, unless we go directly to the voters uh, is the extent to which voters use something like Facebook, not as a, I'm going to follow my election official, but kind of as like a Google search, like, OK, so and so, you know, Washington County election official or Washington County government, I'm going to search, but I'm not necessarily going to follow. I'm just going to see what new information has been shared. And we can't discount that a lot of people go to Facebook for updates and news and they'll you know search their favored candidates page or a news organization's page um and so that's that's also something that we need to think about getting at from the voter side of things too yeah and even yesterday so some of the voters in this in this area in southwest virginia received voter notices that had incorrect voter information that was enclosed about where to go vote and it was it was incorrect and so these offices that do have Facebook pages, except for Russell County, so Washington County and Wise County both put out a notice about that yesterday. And I noticed that it's being shared by others. In the other counties, it seems like individuals are sharing that information. It's not coming from a Facebook page, but someone somewhere has, is trying to share that information. Mm-hmm. So another dimension that we're exploring now is the relationship between the election officials and the media, because uh, it is a, a, a most news local and organizations, if not all, they are on social media and they should follow the election official. So, and this is another way that they can get the message out, uh, even if they have a few, again, a few flow followers. If there's a post on social media, it is more likely to be picked up by the news, uh, by the news media, and then they can magnify uh, um, the the message, right? And we see that uh, happening more on Twitter than on Facebook. So, news media um, are more active in promoting this information on Twitter than on Facebook. Now, are there certain types of people? Like we've talked a little bit about perhaps things that might affect whether there actually is an online presence and they're sharing this information. Have you done any research on the, you know, once the information is shared, the types of people who are most affected by that information, are there groups that are more likely to then go register if they've seen it? I think our mail ballot um, piece probably is the one that uh, maybe it doesn't directly speak to this question, um, but it gives us some insight into it. So in a separate piece, we wanted to understand whether there was a relationship between 
the what we call the information ecosystem created by election officials in North Carolina about mail voting and rates of mail ballot or likelihood rather of mail ballot acceptance. So mail ballots were something that got a lot of attention in 2020 uh, because they were being so widely used because of the pandemic. Um, they do just by virtue of the fact that they are uh, a mode of voting that happens away from the polling place. Um, you do see more rejections on average. You also see that racial and ethnic minority voters are more likely to cast a ballot that gets rejected. We theorize that it's probably due to lower quality information that they have access to, um, but also folks who are unfamiliar with the voting process. Young voters, first-time registrants, they're also more likely to cast a ballot that gets rejected. And so we wanted to know, well, is there actually something that election officials can do to bump those likelihoods up? And we show an average effect uh, when election officials prioritize that information, when they prioritize mail voting, um, there's an increased likelihood that you're, if you have an election official that does that, that your mail ballot is going to be, you're going to correct, fill it out correctly, it's going to be accepted. But we also see a boost for racial and ethnic minority voters and for young voters. And so that doesn't speak directly to, it's hard to observe that mechanism directly, um, but there's some good evidence that there is value to cultivating an information system eco or ecosystem um, that prioritizes certain pieces of information um, for processes for which voters might be otherwise more prone to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it helps those voters in particular. Yeah, we had some activities on our campus related to voter education during National Voter Education Week. And I keep hoping that, you know, every time we host a voter registration drive, every time we host something that is about, you know, just spreading the word about how to go vote, where to go vote, all of that, that it does make a difference. And I know there are some organizations that have been tracking whether young people are more likely to go vote or register if these activities are happening. So I see some positives coming out of that. And then also y'all's work, which is fantastic that you're able to do this like on a state level, looking state by state, county by county, district by district. That's great. So here's my last question for both of you. What would you say? Okay, we're going to be move beyond just kind of like the voter registration offices um, and the election officials. Is there anything that citizens themselves can do to encourage voter engagement? Is sharing these things on social media something you would encourage us as citizens to be doing as well? So this is what I tell my students, um, because we do engage, as you said, we do voter registration drives on campus. I think peer-to-peer -peer is very important. Um, and there has to be some connection to the, uh, the group you're talking to. So I was explaining to my students, if I go out on the the drill field um, at the Mississippi State campus and I say, hey, come right to vote. They're going to look at me and say, who is this old person and what is she talking about? So if you see your peers, you will be more likely to get engaged. And we know from, this is a robust finding from research that talking about politics and talking to your friends and talking to your networks is important. So building this community from the ground up um, is important too. Um, and um, Mara described as a, describes as an ecosystem, and that's that's true. So we have to find ways to make these connections, talk to our friends, inform them about our election officials. So those who, who you know that we follow, hey, do you know that you can get information from there? And so a big effort that election officials are are trying to make in the last years is that come to us for election information. So don't rely on anyone else, verify. We are your trusted sources. Don't hear your grandma, your neighbor. They are well-intentioned most of the times, but 
verify, come to us and ask us questions. And everyone whom we talk to, they're so, they're, they make themselves available. They do, they care about this. So they will find a time to, to talk to voters. So yeah, talk to your friends, but also make sure that you connect with your election official for the most accurate information about voting. Yeah. And I think that spreading that message too, in a peer-to-peer way that election officials are your trusted sources of information is so invaluable. It's going to make your life easier as a voter. If you have the correct information that you're confident that you have the correct information, and it's also going to make their lives easier. Election officials mentally make a lot of connection between a well-informed electorate in the sense of they're informed about the electoral process and the smoothness of operations during an election season. So empirically, you know, this is something we can test, but it's their perception. This is very much their perception um, that that really helps, which is why, what is something like 90% of election officials in um, the election official survey from Reed College said that they enjoy voter education and see it as a part of their responsibilities. So this is not a small proportion of this group that believes in these efforts, both for the voters themselves, but also, you know, it's a win-win for them uh, in most situations. Um, Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Well, thank you both for being on the show again. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of the broadcast today, you can listen to this program again, wherever you listen to podcasts like Spotify, Amazon, Red, White, and Confused comes on weekly on 90.7 WEHC at 6 p.m. on Thursdays and Sundays at 1. You can also find us on Facebook. If you like the show today, feel free to share it with your friends. Have a great week, everyone.